journey with us below the ocean's surface to a place of darkness and eternal silence where man cannot go without his protective technology, a vast alien place in which countless secrets are hidden, countless mysteries unsolved. It was in this aquatic other world that Mark Harris was born. Stan Lee presents Man from Atlantis. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 74, Latitude 90, Man from Atlantis, Issue 6, July 1978, cover date. Hello, time travelers. It's me again, Ben. Ben Avery, the comic book time traveler guy who takes a comic book time machine and goes back in time to read comic books because that's what you would do if you had a comic book time machine. Now, a regular time machine you might use for other things, but a comic book time machine, you use it for this, right? Anyway, I'm here to talk about one more Marvel comic. It was licensed from a TV show, Man from Atlantis. Now, Man from Atlantis, issue number six. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we've had Human Fly, and it was it was something special. We've had Godzilla, and it was something special. And we've had Star Wars, and it was something special. And now we have Man from Atlantis, issue number six. Is it something special? Well, everybody is loved by somebody. So this issue might be something special to somebody, like maybe Bill Mantlo. I don't know. Is it, does it live up to the heights, the highest of heights that we've gotten from the other, uh, <laughs> other books from July 1978 cover date? No, it's, it's just more of the same level of quality that we've been getting from Man from Atlantis, which is not great, not super cheesy, but pretty solid and in the middle. Although there is some really interesting and I think enjoyable things in this issue. It's just not, it doesn't take me to the place where I'm excited reading Star Wars or I'm mortified and just uh, completely amazed with, with uh, Human Fly. No, this is uh, Man from Atlantis, though, and it's based on the, uh, from the cover copy, the sensational NBC television super series. Although we'll talk about later uh, whether it was actually a sensational television series or not, not just a television series, but sensational television super series. Latitude 90 is the name of the issue. It's the name of the story, I should say. Um, last issue was chapter one, and then it was called A Modern Master of the World. This issue, it is not chapter two. They dropped that. I'm not sure what what that was, if that was an editorial oversight or if that was something they decided, you know, we're really, we're going to be just continuing from story to story here. Um, it's not actually, you know, chapter one of a story. And so they, they dropped it. I don't know. But it's it's called Latitude 90. And the cover has Mark Harris 
in water. There's a metal collar on his neck and a steel cable leash attached to the collar on one end and attached to a spool on top of a Nazi-ish looking submarine on the other end. And there's a ichthyosaur leaping out of the water toward Mark. Jaws open, ready to, to, to devour the poor man from Atlantis. And, uh, the cover copy gives us, like I said, that all new from the sensational NBC super television series. And then it says, in a prehistoric sea surrounded by a lost hidden land, Mark Harris is trapped at the mercy of Scorba. Bait for the behemoth. And yes, this is again continuing that story that we had before with Scorba. The writer is Bill Mantlow. The penciler, again, Frank Robbins. The inker is Frank Springer. Uh, Joseph Rosen is the letterer. And the colorist is Janice Cohen. The cover that I just described was by Ernie Chan. Before we look inside, let's talk about music because I've been listening to Michael Giacchino's music, uh, soundtracks for movies that he has done that I really appreciate and enjoy and sometimes write to. I like to listen to movie scores when I write. It's especially exciting when you're writing something that matches the you know, matches, matches exactly the tone of the music that you're actually listening to. And uh, in this case, uh, I listened to Jurassic World, <laughs> you know, dinosaurs. Uh, it made sense. And it was almost perfect. The difference between this and, say, listening to the uh, the Cloverfield with Godzilla is that Cloverfield is going to be perfect no matter what, I think. It's about it's, – it, well, it is. It's 12 minutes, and that's about the time it takes to read a comic if you're going to take your time, especially these 17-page things that we're getting here in the 70s. But – this was almost perfect. What made it work best was that I ended up going and switching tracks, not just starting it and listening to it as it's going. So I switched tracks, and there's some exciting, you know, in the movie, there's music that fits the exciting dino conflict and moments of wonder, you know, that that Spielbergian wonder that they were trying to emulate in Jurassic World. And Michael Giacchino, he does a good job emulating John Williams. Um, I think... In the Ben's Bullpen Bulletin section, I, I was, I've been thinking ahead. John Carter is pretty easy, what I'm going to listen to with that. But I've been thinking ahead to Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur, what I'm going to listen to with those. And, and I, I've got a good idea, and I think it's going to fit nicely. And it's, it's where uh, Michael Giacino was trying to be uh, not just taking themes that John Williams created with Jurassic Park to use in Jurassic World, but where he actually was just trying to figure out what would John Williams do if he was doing this this particular score. Anyway, it was a good fit because this comic has moments of dino conflict and great wonder. And I, well, let's, let's just start talking about the story. I guess Uh, we open with an adventurous splash page. And then there's an action scene that follows where Mark is swimming in the depths of a lake at the top of the world, so to speak with this, uh, this uh, it's a, a lost world type of scenario where they have found this place that no one knows about. There's jungle and there's dinosaurs and, and all that kind of thing. It's a lost world. He's tethered by that collar. It's a shock collar and the tether, the cable that's actually holding him is actually what delivers the shock as well. And if he doesn't do what he's asked to do by score, they're going to activate the shock. And uh, so this is nice because then when the ichthyosaur comes after him, 
um, he would normally be able to escape pretty easily because he is a powerful swimmer. He's lithe. He's small, smaller than the ichthyosaur, and there's plenty of places to hide. But with that collar, he can't swim around and through things, and it's holding him back. And it's kind of cool, kind of a, a cool little scene there, nice little um, roadblock to to uh, Mark's, Mark's own powers. And I, I feel like also the artwork – uh, that Robbins has done some course correction here. I feel like the swimming action reflects what the shoal would do if it could feels realistic, but also is drawn dynamically and, and uh, with that comic book feel uh, and they're doing things. They're throwing things into the mix that the TV show could never do like dinosaurs. Uh, the, the show in the seventies on a prime time <laughs> you know, Friday evening or whatever budget, uh, you're not going to be able to do that week to week. You're not even going to be able to do that, you know, once a season, and and you're not going to be able to do it and make it look good. I mean, it's either going to be stop motion animation like Land of the Lost or a man in a suit like Godzilla, and neither of those would look good at all underwater, especially with those '70s special effects. So nice, I I have to say, Bill Mantlo does a great job here taking the show, uh, the premise of the show and the spirit of the show. Uh, but then taking this story to places where it needs to go and can go and can do things that the show never could do unless, like I said, it was stop motion or a man in a suit or they could take the route that they did with that rushing water thing that they did and just make them be invisible dinosaurs. I guess they could go to that direction. But, you know, in the comic book, you don't have a budget that used to be a, a big selling point for why would you do a story as in comics form, it's because you can tell stories that you couldn't tell visually uh, anywhere else um, other than, you know, in, in, say, I guess, an illustration or something like that. But, you know, a movie or uh, it would be cost prohibitive for a movie or, or a TV show. Anyway, it's an exciting opening. So Mark takes care of things. He, obviously, he survives and he goes back up to Scorba and tells him he needs to be let off the leash if he's going to find anything down there. So they they do, but they leave him with the threat that they'll attack and destroy his friends if he does anything to try to escape. So he's still on a leash. Uh, he's just not on a, a literal leash. It's it's that metaphorical you know, bad guy threat. He goes under again, and actually while he goes under, uh, Scorba's ship gets attacked by another water uh, dinosaur thing. But Mark doesn't know, and Mark doesn't care. Uh, he's interested in finding out what they finding what they want him to find. I don't know if they know exactly what's down there. They just know something in special is down there, and they're sending him down. And there's a great page of him just exploring his environment using his enhanced underwater senses kind of thing. Uh, this page alone, in some ways... Uh, kind of redeems Bill Mantlo uh, from the human fly this month. Uh, again, I love some of the things Bill Mantlo has done, and I've read some of the things that I'm going to be covering, uh, but I haven't read it in such a long time. But this is you know in the, in the far off future, if I get to it, that Bill Mantlo, he wrote some of the most amazing, considering the constraints he had, stories. And human fly, it ain't that, you know. <laughs> But with with this, you know, this page here, it's just a great practical page of Mark doing what he does. He um, 
he swims, but then they show a close-up of his eyes as he's looking through the dark waters. And they, they do a close-up of his nose as he smells. And uh, they do a close-up of his tongue as he actually tastes the water. And then they show his hand reaching out to feel the warm currents. And he uses all this to find an underwater cavern. And yes, it is a little bit on the nose. I mean, literally, one of the panels is of his nose. But it's a nice moment where you actually just get to see him being an underwater being. Now, the TV show did do a scene similar to this where he was discovering an underwater cavern. And actually, it was an underwater cavern that had been used by some some culture in, in years and years past. But again, they could never have done this on a 1970s soundstage. They might have been able to do some sort of cheap in-camera tricks with models to do. I mean, they, they did this kind of thing with Star Trek and matte paintings and that kind of thing. So they might have been able to do it with that, but it wouldn't have been as effective. I don't think it definitely wouldn't have been as, as effective as this, because when once you cut to a model or, you know, little people against a green screen, again, we're talking 70s science fiction special effects. We're not talking about today. But, you know, it just takes you out once they move to a special effects shot. And in the comic book, there is no being taken out. If they'd switched artists, maybe you'd be taken out of it. But they they don't. This is all Frank Robbins. And so he walks into this place and it's huge. It's big. It's an it's a dead city in a cave. And it looks like it could be Atlantis. Now, this is kind of an exciting prospect, but. You know, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, well, that's neat. But, you know, they can't reveal his origins in a comic book Um, or could they? I mean, maybe they could when the show was still going or maybe they rather couldn't while the show was still going. But was the show still going again? More on that in a moment. And he finds a dead king, then a skeleton on a throne wearing a crown. And is this one of Mark Harris's ancestors? I mean, the comic is able to present things here as if it is something you can question and possibly think about. The comic book definitely wants you to think about, are these people from Mark Harris's ancestors or whatever? But they can't make those answers. They can't give you those answers. Um, so, well, since we don't get any other answer, uh, as far as I know from the show, you know, maybe the comic book could be taken to be, you know, Mark's mark's background who knows anyway he sees this dead king a skeleton on the throne he's wearing the crown he reaches for the crown then and a spear flies by mark harris as he reaches for the crown he's being attacked by someone who looks like she's um red sonia on her way to the greek forum or something like that uh or the the roman forum or whatever it is uh and she has two really mean looking dogs with her two just kind of I'm not sure if they're meant to be Doberman Pinschers. They're a little off. Uh, They aren't necessarily meant to be realistic dogs. I don't know if they're meant to be any kind of breed because of what they end up uh, being. But he's being attacked by this mysterious woman who has, you know, seems to live there or be, you know, this is her home. Meanwhile, Elizabeth and Mark's other friends from the Institute are using their submarine to look for Mark. And this is where, you know, I could have done without this, but, you know, whatever. This is setting up things for the future because a person is caught on radar swimming toward them, or at least a small thing is swimming toward them. And it can't be Mark. We know that, but they don't know that. So they rush to see who it is. And we don't see who it is then. We just see them reacting and looking and seeing this person. And 
they think it's Mark, but then we get the dialogue from this mysterious person, Mark. Who's he? A bore, no doubt. Certainly not so much fun as little old me. <laughs> and I'm just kind of left shaking my head like, what? <laughs> what is this right now? And then the, there's even a caption that says a mystery to be saved until next-ish. So like I said, setting up the future. Meanwhile, Mark finds the treasure Scorba wants, and we find out that a pirate has come before and died, and the woman and Mark struggle as he's looking at the treasure, and she's worried about his intentions, and she actually, I mean, she implies that the pirate came, and his intentions were not just about the treasure. Uh, Mark says he just wants to take the treasure and deliver it because, you know, his friends are in danger, and she says, you lie! We slew a pirate here only a week ago. He, too, said he was only wanting the treasure. But the look that came into his eyes when he laid his filthy hands on me told me that he spoke false. And, like, yikes, this is this is kind of heavy. I mean, is she implying that he was trying to, to rape her? I, I think he I think she is. I think that's exactly what she's saying. And that's not good and very interesting. I mean, it's very subtle. As a kid, I would never have known what they were talking about. As a young teenager, I might not have even been able to figure out what they were talking about. But now I'm just like, wow, okay, they, they went there. And so then while they're still struggling, Mark says to her, um, he's trying to comfort her. And he says, that look is not in my eyes. Um, because, you know, he is our hero. He has good intentions. He just wants the treasure. It's surprising that they're having this struggle and it's not about the treasure at all. It's about this other thing. And then their struggle is interrupted by the dogs who talk. And one of them says, uh, unhand her, man. Move aside and let us have him. And then the other dog says, Sirius, must, must we kill him as we did the pirate? And then Mark Harris says exactly what I said after I read this. The dogs, they are talking. Um. And this might have been a good place to do a show, don't tell kind of thing. Mark didn't have to say that. We could see the dogs were talking. The captions, or the, the word balloons, I should say, the tails were pointing exactly where they needed to be for us to understand. Uh, and so speaking of the dogs, there's not much of a space theme here. As I have said, you know, I was you know, putting these all into this kind of, you know, they're all dealing with space or whatever. But... If I were one to stretch things to fit my agenda, and I am, uh, the dogs are named Cassiopeia and Sirius. And both of those are figures from mythology. And both of those are constellations. So, boom. Space. And also, maybe I should wait until I do Ben's Bullpen Bulletin after I've read all these. And when I do that, then I can announce uh, <laughs> the unity tie that binds the comics of the month anyway uh the writing seems to be on the wall for mark harris not just with the dogs but also this issue it hits stands on april 18th 1978 which was the same day episode 10 of the first real season hit the airwaves on nbc April 18th, 1978. The previous episode to air was December 13th of 1977. Then on the letters page, they actually talk about how NBC has canceled the series. Episode 10 through 12 aired over this week and then the next two weeks. 
and then episode 13 wouldn't air until June. So they did burn off all the produced episodes eventually, but they knew they knew that they were going to be canceled or that the, the TV show had been canceled. I should say the question is, did they think they were going to continue past the show? And I don't know in the pages of the human fly after his disastrous stunt attempt, they did, they continued and they knew they were continuing because of the rock music career or something here. Who knows? Um, we'll find out more next issue, which I actually believe is the last issue of, of a uh, man from Atlantis. Uh, anyway, the letters page actually gets a little bit snarky um, in the letter where they address the cancellation. Someone mentions, you know, um, they did this on the show and you didn't even do this until, you know, in, you haven't even done it yet. As far as like character movement or character development or someone moving off from the show or getting a, a promotion. And and they're like, well, you know, they're working on the show, you know, months and months ahead of time. And and so they're but they're doing one episode per week and we have to keep up with that. And we're working ahead, but we're doing one issue per month. And I just understand. Like, okay. It just it just felt a little a little bit snarky. Anyway, this story itself has so much premise, but really only has promise if they are able to take things where comic adaptations are not necessarily allowed to go, like exploring the backstory of Mark Harris. And with the knowledge that the show had been canceled, perhaps they wouldn't be able to try that. But then I think the scripting for the next few issues um, was done. And this even was done long before they knew because they mentioned the cancellation in the editorial copy, which could be, you know, just put on a page right before they go to print. But as far as the scripting process and the drawing process and the lettering process and all of that, they are working on this long ahead of time. So uh, perhaps they they knew, but this exploration of that possible connection to Mark's Atlantis connection, I, I don't think it's going to count for much at all. But I have to say kudos to Bill Mantlo in this issue. Uh, he kept the spirit of the show, but went to places where the show could not go. And that was nice. That was it's good. It's been a good run. We'll see. I think, like I said, last the next issue is the last. So, uh, the next segment we're going to be talking about uh, uh, John Carter, Warlord of Mars. So, I do want to just take the time to say thank you for listening. And I know there are a few listeners out there. You have actually sent me some short messages that were very nice to hear from people who were excited or enjoyed hearing this this coverage. And and that makes me feel really good to hear that from you. So thank you very much. And uh, then beyond that, I really can only say, again, thank you for listening. But also, Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, This is the Day Helium Died. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 14.